when I experience it. Um, I'm still pretty busy. As many of you will know, I work with the trust. I direct a trust to try and strengthen Scottish preaching. It's called 2 Timothy 4. If you don't know about it, there's some flyers on the stairs there. I'm teaching in various colleges. I'm at ICC again this month, Faith Mission, um, running workshops. We have a workshop here in the chapel at the end of the month on the book of Acts with David Cook. who will be preaching on the uh, following Sunday. Um, I'm mentoring various pastors, ranging from those just starting out, which is exciting, uh, to one pastor who's been preaching 25 years, which is a brave move on his part, and it's very rewarding. And uh, value your prayers for that work. Um, I'll also be going again at the invitation of Simon Chikwana, the director of the Zambezi Mission in Malawi. I'm going to Malawi in the second half of July, and we're crossing over with David and Kirsty uh, Henry. We're crossing over into Mozambique for a conference with 100 pastors who have very little and it's a great opportunity and then coming back I'll be coming back again via Cape Town and uh, uh, teaching in a couple of Bible colleges and preaching again at St. James Church in Kenilworth so looking forward to that Nita's staying home this time but I'm taking a young man with me who's one of the young guys that I mentor so it'll be exciting for him he's never been to Africa before it's always fun to take somebody else isn't it so I do value prayers for those things let's pray first of all then and ask God to help us this morning very briefly May the words of my lips and the meditation of our hearts be now and always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's after the morning service and here you are struggling through the lounge. Wouldn't it be great to have a bigger space, by the way? Um, And as you make your way towards the coffee in the corner, you spot someone that you don't know. Now, I hope you're not just one of these people who looks for your friends. It's great to see our friends and catch up with them, but I hope you're someone who also looks out for visitors and makes them welcome. So here's someone you've never met before, and you decide to go up to them and make conversation. Now, in these circumstances... There are three things you need to know initially, reflected in three questions that we ask in one way or another. First of all, there's a question about identity. Morning. Who are you? What's your name? There's a question about residence. Where are you from? Or if you're Scottish, where do you stay? And a question about occupation. What do you do? There's also a fourth question that follows on from the third that we don't always ask. Not just what you do, your occupation, but why do you do it? Many years ago, we had a young friend who left school and he wanted to get a job. And so he went to the local big supermarket chain and they had a job as a trainee butcher. And so he went for an interview for this job And they said to him, why do you want to be a butcher? To which he answered, I've always enjoyed working with animals. (laughs) Well, he got the job and he's still a butcher as far as I know and still enjoying working with animals. You see, why questions 
are more significant than what questions. For why questions reveal motivation, and motivation is what drives action. Now, interestingly, you can ask these same four questions of any church. What's your name? Charlotte Chapel, sometimes with a middle name, Baptist. Where do you stay? 204 West Rose Street, Edinburgh, though we're thinking of moving to a bigger place around the corner as the resources for our growing family are stretched to capacity in our present building. Question three, what do you do? Now, if you're a member of Charlotte Chapel, just put your hand up if you're a member. Just, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Right, it's interactive preaching here. Um, you should know the answer to this. Somebody says, what does Charlotte Chapel do? It's what's called our vision statement. So what is our vision? Our vision is to... Need some education here. We... Okay, I'll put it on the screen for you, all right? So I got this off the website. We seek to be conspicuous to Christ as we glorify God by making disciples of all nations, reaching out to save the lost, building up Christians in their faith, and then sending them out with the good news, with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> now, that's what we do. It's an ambitious goal. And over the next few weeks, different people will be unpacking and thinking about what we actually do. But I was asked to launch this series. Actually, originally I was told, come and preach for us and you can choose any subject you like. And then Paul said to me, we've changed our mind. Will you launch the vision statement? Which I'm happy to do. So today I want to focus on the fourth question. Not what we do, but why we do it. Why, for example, do we meet together today in this building instead of lying in bed enjoying a leisurely breakfast and reading a newspaper, as many people are? Or more pertinently, why should we be prepared to give sacrificially in order to raise £1.55 million to buy St. George's West in Chandrick Place? What is it that motivates us? What is it that determines our decisions? Well, the answer, the key, is found in the first phrase of our vision statement. It says, we glorify God by doing certain things. Today I want to answer, or try to answer, a much more fundamental question. Not we glorify God by, but my, my subject, if you want it, is we glorify God. Why? Why should our goal as a church and as individuals be to glorify God? And what does it mean? We've been singing about it. What, what does it mean to glorify God? It's one thing to speak about glorifying God. It's one thing to sing about glorifying God. But what does it look like in real practice? Now, if our vision is ambitious, answering this question is also ambitious because in many ways it's the theme of this whole book, the Bible, which gives us God's answer to everything that fundamentally is of importance to us. 
So what I want you to do very simply is look at this question. We glorify God. Why? And I want to highlight and state in the simplest terms three reasons why we glorify God. And what I want you to do, and you could choose almost passages throughout the Bible, I want to highlight one passage of the Bible under each of these headings. And I think this, everyone should understand this, hopefully. Even if you've just started coming to church, even if you're a visitor, I hope it'll be understandable. And there's a very brief outline um, on the uh, PowerPoint on the screens. Okay, here's the first reason in time and in importance. Why do we glorify God? Answer one, this is the purpose for which we were created. This is the purpose for which we're created. Now, we can look in all sorts of places, but hope you've got a Bible in front of you. So open your Bible at Psalm 8. You'll find it on page 546 if you've got a pew Bible. A wonderful little psalm composed by David. Psalm 8, let me read it. Page 546. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place... What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands and put everything under his feet. All flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. In all the earth. Now in this song of praise, it's a wonderful psalm, David reflects on the created order, the world in which he lives. He looks up and far above all is God. His name reflecting his being and his character. He says, your name is majestic in all the earth. And above the earth, you've set your glory above the heavens. God's glory is his splendor, the essence of his character. Many ways indescribable, the brilliance of his being, which is beyond anything we can ever understand. So when David looks up to the night sky and thinks about this high and glorious God, he asks a question that every human being asks. Maybe in different words, he says, What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you should care for him. In other words, he's saying, what place do I have in the scheme of this great and glorious God? Do I matter to him? Or am I even less significant to God than an ant or a microbe is to me? Douglas Coupland, the author who popularized the term Generation X in his book of that name, was once asked a very interesting question in a newspaper, in a magazine article. The question he was asked was, what is your greatest fear? And here's what he said. That there is a God, but he isn't much interested in human beings. Isn't that interesting. 
that there is a God, but he isn't much interested in human beings. Amazingly, thankfully, David declares we have need, need have no such fears. For God has placed human beings in a privileged position. Look where God has placed human beings. He says, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. So to summarize, let's try and think about this. Far above all is God. Below him, serving and praising him are what he calls heavenly beings. Or elsewhere in the Bible, they're called angels, angelic beings. And just beneath these angels, in terms of status and position, are human beings. You have made us a little lower than the heavenly beings. And he says, we human beings have been crowned by God with glory. Notice the word again. With glory, reflecting God's character and honor. To lift up our eyes to heaven and worship him, you've ordained praise, he says. That's what we're made for. And below us are the rest of creation, animate beings. Flocks and herds, beasts, birds, fish that fly, walk, swim. That is why God has placed us. But should we be in any danger of getting above ourselves, literally, he finishes his psalm by where he started, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, David did not dream this up in some moment of poetic fantasy. What he describes is poetry. But it is not fantasy, but reality, for it reflects how God planned things at creation. You go right back to the beginning of the Bible, he's writing in poetry what Genesis 1 and 2 describes, how God made things. In the beginning, God, that's where everything starts, then God created the heavens and the earth. And he made everything. And supremely he made human beings as the crown of his creation. Man and woman made in his own image, reflecting his glory. And experiencing the warmth and security of his love. So Adam and Eve are placed in paradise with all they need. And best of all, they enjoy intimate fellowship with this great and glorious God. It's described in the book of Genesis that they walk with God in the garden. So we glorify God because this is the reason for which we were made. Now, at one time, this would have gone without saying in almost every church in Scotland, particularly every Presbyterian church in Scotland. Our children were taught from an early age. They were catechized in the Christian faith. In what's called the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which just goes right back to the 17th century, uh, written by Scottish and English divines. So here's the second question. Okay, this will tell who was catechized, all right? I'll ask the question. If you know the answer, say it immediately afterwards, all right? Listen. What is the chief end of man? That's pretty good. All the younger ones are thinking, what is this about? <laughs> but that's the problem, you see. We don't know what we're, where we fit today. Here's the answer. What is the chief end, purpose of man? And woman, of course, it's written in those days. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. We glorify God when we worship Him for who He is, exalting His name in all the earth, rejoicing in the relationship for which we were made, the role to which He's assigned us to care for creation. Sadly, tragically, not one of us does this 
And the root cause again goes back to the beginning. After Genesis 1 and 2 comes Genesis 3. Adam and Eve, our first parents, were taken in by a lie, by the tempter in the form of a snake or serpent, described in Genesis 3, who caused them to doubt God's word and to disobey God's command when God said, you have everything you want, but there's one thing you must not do. You must not eat of one particular tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Otherwise, if you do, you will die. Now, notice the form of the temptation recorded in Genesis 3, verses 4 and 5. You will certainly not die, the serpent, the snake said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, notice the phrase. The temptation is not that the forbidden fruit was wonderful, golden, delicious, or whatever fruit it was. It was what the fruit would give you. It will make you like God. In other words, this is rebellion. An opportunity to climb above your status, says the tempter, and taken in by the lie, the consequences are terrible. For them and for all of us, their descendants. Banished from paradise, estranged from God, living in a fallen world in which even the created order is disordered. That's the world we live in. The fallen world in which we live and the fallen nature we inherit. Our chief end is to glorify God, but instead human beings fail to even recognize, let alone worship the God who created everything. So in the New Testament, the book of Romans begins by describing this terrible problem that we face and tells us that that rebellion that began in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve continues today. Listen, Romans 1 verse 21. For although they knew God, it can be seen from creation, they neither, notice the phrase, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him but their thinking became futile, their foolish hearts were darkened. And every one of us, even those we regard as the best and most moral in our society, fail to fulfill our God-given purpose. Here is the verdict, Romans 3, verse 23, all have sinned, and notice the expression, fall short of the glory of God. Now thankfully, this is not the end of the story. Genesis 3 is not the end of the human story. God in his great love has not abandoned us, but has made a way by which we can be restored to that purpose for, by, for which we were created. So we glorify God, firstly because this is the purpose for which we were created, but secondly, this is the purpose for which we were redeemed. And for this, turn to the reading that David read to us in 1 Peter you go back again, it's page 1217. And at the heart of this section is verse 18. This is page 1217, 1 Peter 1, 13 to 25. Now, look at the heart of it. At the heart of it are these words, For you know that you were redeemed. Right, Peter. Now, redemption is one of the wonderful metaphors, really, that describes what God has done for us in Christ. To redeem something means to pay the price for something or for someone in order to free them 
from something bad. It was used in old, olden days. If a person got into debt, like in our recession, how do you get out of debt? Well, in those days, you could sell yourself as a slave to someone else, and you had to work for them. They owned you, literally. The only way you could be freed is if someone paid a price and redeemed you. Then you were free. You were independent. You were no longer a slave. Now, for God's chosen people, the, the theme of redemption is one of the core themes, and it goes back to the most wonderful, well, the most terrible event, really, in their experience when they were slaves in Egypt. When God, in his judgment, sent the angel of death through the land of Egypt, including where the Israelites lived in the land of Goshen, it was called, and every firstborn in every family was killed. God's judgment fell upon the land. And God said to his people, you're much better, so you don't need to worry. No, he said, you will face the same judgment unless you do what I tell you. God said, take a lamb, a perfect lamb without any blemish or defect, sacrifice it, and take the blood from the lamb and smear it on the lintel and doorpost of your houses. And when the angel of death passes through the land on this night, he will pass over you and you will be redeemed. And God's people remembered that. They celebrate it still. It's called Passover. Great day of atonement. When the high priest went into the temple with the blood of a lamb into the inner sanctum, into God's very presence bearing the sin, paying the debt for the people who now belong to God. And the Bible says this is a symbol. It's a picture. The Bible, the word they use the Bible calls is this is a shadow of the reality that was to come. And so Peter writes to these people who are not Jewish by background probably. Most of them will be Gentiles, non-Jews. And he says, look what he says in verse 18. For you know you were redeemed... It was not with perishable things like silver or gold that you were redeemed. But, verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. God sent his son Jesus in the world, into the world to be the lamb who would pay the debt to redeem us. Jesus was the only human being who ever glorified God fully in everything he did. The end of his life, he could say to his father in his final prayer, I've glorified your name in all the earth. We, we sang about it. We'd like to do it, but we don't. And as therefore the perfect lamb, he was able to offer himself as the perfect sacrifice to pay for our sin, to redeem us, to buy us back. And when Jesus died on the cross and said, it is finished in a loud voice, the price was paid, the perfect lamb, the perfect sacrifice, and God declared that this was acceptable, that his mission had achieved what it set out to do, that it was accepted by God. Look at verse 21. Through him, he says, that's Jesus, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. So for those who believe in God, if you are a Christian... If you have turned from your sin, if you put your faith and reliance in Jesus Christ, you have been redeemed. Now notice what he says about our redemption. This is back to our theme. That was kind of a bit of background for those who didn't know. The outcome. Notice what you're redeemed from and what you're redeemed for. 
you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. You see, our chief end is to glorify God. If God has made us, if we designed, if we're programmed that way, if that is in our spiritual DNA, then not to do that, not to make that the chief end of our lives, you will end up living an empty way of life. A pointless way of life, a frustrated way of life, if you like. And he says to his people, you are redeemed from the empty way of life that you handed down to your, from your forefathers. Down through the generations, empty way of life. But when we are redeemed, what are we redeemed for? We are redeemed for a life that glorifies God. And that is the context of verses 13 to 17. He says to these Christians, look, your goal in life now is to glorify God. Let me spell it out to you. Be obedient children. Be self-controlled. Be holy as he is holy. And then he says, for you know this is what you were redeemed for. As it were, he's saying, remember the reason for your redemption. Interesting question, isn't it, to think about. Why did God save you? Well, some people say, God saved me because I needed to be forgiven. Absolutely right. God saved me so I might go to heaven. Absolutely right. God saved me so I might know joy and fulfillment. Absolutely right. But all these things are, in a sense, are the byproduct to the main reason why God saved us, which is so that we might glorify Him. Otherwise, if it's just those things, then Christianity is a pretty selfish thing. I become a Christian to save my skin, to enjoy a good life. When we make that the focus in our evangelism, Things begin to go wrong, especially when our lives go wrong and we face problems. Hang on a minute, I didn't sign up for this. But when we see that our goal in life is to glorify God in everything, then it changes our total perspective. So the Apostle Paul just take an example. Right in the Christians in Corinth, a place famed for its sexual immorality, he says, don't get involved in that kind of stuff. Why not? He says, well, you're not your own. You've been bought with a price, redeemed. Therefore, glorify God with your body and with your spirit, which is Christ. That is why we've been redeemed. That's the second reason. And we need to see that that is the focus of all our lives. Now, that leads to the third reason. We're getting there. How's the time going? Okay. We glorify God. This is the purpose for which we're created. This is the purpose for which we've been redeemed. And thirdly, this is the great purpose for which we're being prepared. You see, when we are redeemed, something interesting happens. We no longer belong to ourselves, we belong to God. So the focus of our lives, our goal in life, shifts from being self-centered to being God-centered. But that is not the end of the matter. I've been a Christian, I'm almost embarrassed to tell you, 51 years. As a teenager, you know, looking at how old I am, I got my pension this year, so okay. Can I say after 51 years of knowing Christ, that I glorify God in everything I do? Embarrassingly, no. You see, there are other forces that seek to drag us away from a God-centered orbit. You see, when God is at the center, it, is it, it, is it were like our lives orbit perfectly around him. 
But there are other forces that seek to drag us away from that God-centered orbit and to put ourselves back in the middle. It's a constant battle. There's a battle with the world. It has a different value system. You, you only need to switch on the television. Or look around you. What did you do on Sunday? You spent the whole morning in church and you went again in the evening. And what are you, some kind of fanatic? And your church is trying to raise what? 1.55 million pounds? Why would you want to give that? Oh, you can't afford it. It's a recession on at the moment. Have you not heard? The world drags us away from that orbit. The flesh drags us away, our own sinful nature, which we still carry with us. There's a compelling... When you become a Christian, the Bible says before you're a Christian, you're dead in sin and you couldn't care less. When you become a Christian, you may say, listen, I've become a Christian and I'm finding it really difficult because I'm tempted to sin all the time. Praise God, that's the sign of life. If you don't have any problem with temptation, I would suggest you're not a Christian. Our nature drags us away. And the Bible says there's the world, there's the flesh, and there's the devil. We have an adversary who didn't give up his activity in Genesis 3. He continues to try and drag us away and say to us, did God really say that? Surely being a Christian, it's a pretty miserable life. Are you really sure that's where you want to devote your life to? And you're thinking of doing that, giving that money? Oh, listen, you could do better than that. So there's, there's an ongoing battle to keep us aligned with the vision that God has given us. As we seek to glorify God, by what? By everything we do. The test of any action is, does this please God? Does this glorify God? Uh, there's a verse that summarizes this, in, uh, in, again, in 1 Corinthians. Here it is. Paul says, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Now, very briefly, the specific issue he's writing about is specific to this church in Corinth. These people have become Christians out of a Greek background. And they got a problem. They kept writing to Paul, who'd founded their church, with the problems. And their big problem here is, I got invited by my next-door neighbor for dinner last night, and he brought on beautiful roast lamb. But then I wondered, was this lamb sacrificed to Greek gods in the temple beforehand? And if so, am I okay to eat it or not? Or should I just say, sorry, I, I don't touch that kind of thing. Now, I don't have time to deal with it. If you want to know about it, one of our missionaries, Derek Newton, spent seven years doing a PhD on this subject in relation to the church in Indonesia where it is still a live issue, where people have come to faith out of that kind of background. But what matters is the principle. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That is our goal. But secondly, if that is our goal, if God is glorified... When our lives are turned around and when we seek to glorify God, we want it to be the goal of everyone. We recognize that most people do not live their lives as God intends. Their chief end is not to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And that should cause us deep anguish. Again, it's another sign if you're a Christian. Are you not grieved when you switch on the news and, and see the kind of things that are happening? Six children burnt to death, five children in fire. Someone set the house on fire. Some guy gouges out his girlfriend's eyes. I mean, you read this, it's terrible. 
People living in fallen world. You look at what's happening in so many different parts of our world. And then you look at your friends. Even the ones who've got everything that life seems to offer. And yet deep down you can see that there is, they're living an empty way of life. So what do you want to do? Well, you've got the answer. We've got the remedy. The only remedy. God's remedy. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why our vision statement says we glorify God as a church... Our main activity is to make disciples of all nations. Following the great commission Jesus gave his church, is to go and make disciples of all nations because only the gospel can turn people's lives around. That's why we're running this project in the summer. It's not so people can have a wonderful experience and see how great the Bible is, which is, I hope they do, but the whole purpose is that they see, hey, this is where my life has been going wrong. I need to realign. My life needs to be recalibrated. That's why our vision. Go back to our vision statement again. Just look at it again. We glorify God by making disciples of all nations. So we want to reach out to lost people and get their lives back on track. And when they get their lives back on track, we want to build them up in their faith so they're stronger Christians. And then we'll send them out to their neighborhood or maybe to the ends of the earth with some of our mission family. It's all the same thing, really. We're all missionaries in that sense. We want more people to come to faith. And as more and more people come to faith, as whole societies and groups and families are changed, so God is increasingly glorified because that is the goal to which God is aiming everything. You see, God has got an agenda. It's described in this book. It starts in the book of Genesis in the beginning. God creates the heavens and the earth and God says when it comes to the end I'm going to finish what I started I'm going to finish the job and there'll be a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells so here is the thing go back again we glorify God this is the goal for which we are striving until God's plan comes to completion the prophet said this Habakkuk and Isaiah almost identically he says for the earth will the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That should come up at the bottom. Thanks. Hopefully. There you go. That's God's great agenda. And our great privilege as church is to be part of helping to fulfill that agenda. Wow. Can you think of a bigger vision? To get on side with God and be part of his vision? That's what we're praying for, preparing for. So, as we conclude, and almost finished, let's read about it. Because once you see what the end vision is going to be, it inspires us to say, yeah, that's going to happen, and I want to be part of it. So, here's the third passage. Go back right to the end of the Bible. We've been right from the beginning to the end. So, this is great, isn't it? It's all one story, this book. Revelation 21. We'll just pick out some verses. But when you get home... Read it yourself and enjoy it. And when you get when you struggle and think, "Where's my life going? What's Charlotte Chapel doing?" Think this is what we're aiming for. This is going to happen. It's absolutely certain. Listen, Revelation twenty-one. It's page one two four nine. Then I saw a new heaven and the new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. He will live with them, like he did in Genesis 1 and 2. 
They will be his people. God himself will be with them. He'll be their God. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He was seated on the throne and said, I am making everything new. The lamb seated on the throne says this. Then he said, write this down for these words are true and trustworthy. Go down to verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God. And there's a description of it. It's perfection. Then verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God. Notice the word. Glory of God gives it light. The Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates be ever shut for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So, two questions. Then I finish. Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Or to put it another way, have you been redeemed from your old pointless way of life? If you haven't, your life will be empty, unfulfilled, and without purpose. As it already is. Be honest. You need to get right. What do you do? You turn from your old way of life, your rebellion against God, and you say, Lord, thank you for Jesus who's made it possible to get my life back on track. Repent, turn from sin, turn to God. That's the first question. Have you been redeemed? Secondly, if you have been redeemed, what's your focus? Is it to glorify God in everything you do and to seek to enable others to glorify God by being a gospel-focused person and Charlotte Chapel being a gospel-focused church? You see, that must be the heart of the reason why we want to move to St. George's West. It's not for our convenience so we can get through the coffee lounge without knocking everybody over or our kids can have a better in school, or whatever. The whole purpose is that we might more effectively reach out, build up, and send out. It's a means to an end. And that's our goal. We glorify God. Why? It's the purpose for which we're created. It's the purpose for which we've been redeemed. And it's the purpose for which we're being prepared. What a privilege to be part of it. Let's pray together.